Hello and welcome to Not Fake News Episode 3. This is your residential conservatarian, Braden Hart. Today's episode was supposed to be super duper jam-packed. I was supposed to bring on uh, Sandra McDowell to talk about her bid for the Missouri gubernatorial ship, but the Skype was having, um, from what I thought was technical difficulties, but was just me being a fucking dumbass, uh, excuse the language, I'm just, uh, a little upset because I felt as if I wasted her time, and therefore she's not able to do it anymore because she, being a candidate for governorship, she's very, very busy. But that's okay. We will try to reschedule. But thank God I had a bit of a backup plan. So today, what I would like to do is talk about a couple of topics. The first topic being the national debt, which is an issue that has needed to be talked about for uh, decades, but nobody really wants to talk about it due to the steps that we would have to take in order to uh, try to pay off the national debt. And I was reading an article this week that I'd like to talk to you guys about today. It was an article in Lone Conservative. It's a really, really good, um, what do you call those? It's a, a platform. It's a really good platform for uh, college conservatives if you don't really know where to go. I don't really mean to throw shade at people, but a lot of people think, you know, Turning Point USA would be the good place to go, but that's not necessarily the case. Uh, if you look at some of the uh, look at some of the big wigs up at Turning Point USA, like Charlie Kirk, even uh, Benny Johnson. There's a few people there that I really like. Uh, one person I really like, her name is uh, uh, Alex Clark. She is the host of Poplitics. Uh, let's keep this a little secret, but I kind of have an, inter uh, an internet crush on her. So I think she probably knows this, but oh well, if she doesn't know it, now, she probably will if she finds this podcast. Anywho, I found an article today in the Lone Conservative. It's a site that's founded by uh, Cassie Dillon, who's very, very sharp. Might have to get her on the podcast one of these days. This would be quite the episode. Uh, speaking of uh, guests, next week I plan to bring on uh, Kevin Castley. He is the host of Superpower Broadcasting. We're going to talk all things foreign policy, interventions, even the history of certain uh policy decisions, but meanwhile, now to the article. The article is called 20 tr 25 Trillion and Counting. It is by Daniel Elamore, like I said, at Low Conservative, and the article goes off something like this. It starts out, on May 5th, the United States national debt hit a new milestone, reaching an exuberant $25 trillion. Yes, $25 trillion, which I believe was, was uh, yeah, May 5th. Uh, the milestone came less than one month after the debt reached the milestone of 25 Four trillion in April, and six months since it passed twenty-three trillion in. Uh, well, I'm not going to do the math there, but as you can see, the debt has already gone up three trillion in just less than a year. And uh, the author, whose name, like I said, is uh, Daniel, he left this out, but this isn't really much of a criticism. It's just a more of a adding a little bit of emphasis. But ever since Donald Trump took office in 2017, the debt has gone up about 7 trillion. Whenever Barack Obama left office, he was sitting at about 19 trillion. He had increased the debt from about 8 to 9 trillion up to 19 trillion, which is more than George W. Bush, who increased it about by 4 trillion, Barack Obama by about 9 to 10 trillion, and then Donald Trump already, not even through his first term, has increased the national debt by 7 trillion. I got a little bit of a prediction I would like to make probably toward the end of this segment here, but let's get on with the uh, article. Yes, all of those are trillions, with a T. The debt has been inflated by the CARES Act, 
which is was the first step, was the $2.2 trillion uh, stimulus that the House Democrats put together and the Republicans Actually, that was passed because the Democrats have control of the House. Not a whole lot of resistance was met with the Republicans. I know some of it was, but it didn't really help. It's just compared to the next uh, stimulus pact, the, which is what Nancy Pelosi is pushing. It's called the Heroes Act, which a lot of people, including myself, are calling it the Zeros Act because it's just going to keep piling on more and more and more to the national debt, which will... Just which everyone just keeps deciding, you know, kick it down the road, kick the can down the road, and now on with the argument. With the uh, argument, it's an emergency act relief package to address the economic chaos caused by the novel coronavirus pandemic. The bills will cost U.S. taxpayers two trillion, or almost one tenth of the nation's gross domestic product, aka GDP. It is by far the most complex economic stimulus program in history. It makes the 2009 Recovery Act seem laughable in comparison. With the current uh, level of spending, the question of how will we pay for this debt must be addressed. Yes, it must be addressed. And I believe uh, my friend Jared, who I had on uh, last week, a funny thing, there was no technical difficulties last week, but the uh, this week, I'm not sure why, but like I said, I think it was, well, it was my fault. I uh, didn't have the right volume on, which is uh, hard to explain, really. Currently, mandatory spending makes up over three-fourths of federal outlays in the fiscal year 2020. I believe, I'm not sure what else is in, uh, considered mandatory. I know military spending is part of mandatory spending. I think a few other things are. I'll have to check on that, or if any of you are listening, you can uh, DM me on Twitter, and we can. you can tell me what that really means. Like I said, uh, currently, mandatory spending makes up over three-fourths of federal outlays in the fiscal year uh, 2020. It will cost approximately $3.098 trillion dollars and increased by 6% per year, according to the Congressional Budget Office. However, as proven by former Speaker of the House Paul Ryan, mandatory spending reform is complex and unpopular. Why it's unpopular? Because a lot of even the Republican base is that 65-plus demographic, and if you mess with their Social Security, you're going to lose their vote, you know? Democrats are all about spending, 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 spending. The Republicans always preach about uh, fiscal conservatism. Mark Levin makes this point. Uh, he likes to point out that these Republicans are all like, you know, I'm not a social conservative. I'm not like one of those wackos. And I'm not a hawk, but damn it, I'm a fiscal conservative. Most of the Republicans in Congress are not. I can honestly count on one hand to count all the fiscal conservatives in uh, Congress. Uh, meanwhile, <clears throat> spend, spend. most Americans are increasingly in favor of programs such as Medicare and Social Security. Something has to happen before a, uh, before a catastrophe occurs. The CBO projects a $100 trillion shortfall within Social Security and Medicare by 2048, only $82 trillion of it coming from a cash deficit. But how did these programs get to that point? In 1935, Social Security... So in 1935, Social Security's first year, the average life expectancy was about 62, was about 62. With 65 being the retirement age, most people did not live long enough to collect Social Security. With advancements in medical understandings and technology, the average life expectancy in the United States is almost 80. Yet the retirement age has not budged since the creation of Social Security. In 1940, with the first... Uh, Benefits rolled out, there were almost 160 workers for every retiree. Today, that ratio is less than 3 to 1. This dramatic increase with the increase in life expectancy 
means that three that three taxpayers will be responsible for uh, propping up a retiree for up to 30 years. The situation is becoming ultimately catastrophic. Massive reform is needed before it uh, sends both the national debt and retiree entitlements into a disastrous fate. It's exactly like my uh, friend Jared, who, like I said, I had on last week. He even said, you know, something's got to be done, whether it's raising the retirement age for those who are, say, under a certain age and keeping retirement age the uh, same, or whether it's just privatizing some sectors of Social Security. Something's got to give. Something's got to do something to get under control. So how should this uh, predicament be handled? First and foremost, the retirement age must be increased to 70 to reflect the current lifespan. As explained by the Manhattan Institute, and nothing changes in 15 years, there will just be two workers paying the taxes to support each retiree, but married couple will hook for their own, very own senior. Uh, thus, the age of retirement should be gradually increased to at least 70 to slow down this behemoth. I actually agree with that, and I know, I hope, uh, grandma and grandpa, if you're listening, hope you don't get mad at me or her dad as well. Uh, I know that both my grandparents are over the age of 70, so they wouldn't really be affected by this. But like this article says, uh, most people are living life's current lifespan is close to 80. So I don't know why people would have a problem with raising the uh, retirement age. Thus, the age of retirement should be gradually increased to at least 70 to slow down this behemoth. Furthermore, furthermore, having people work longer also increases the time that people can prepare for the retirement. This increases their time in the workforce, would also save approximately $32 billion over 10 years. That's about, I'd say, $3.2 billion per year, which is chump change as of right now to the uh, current national debt. And another thing to point out, the current national debt is showing $25 trillion. That is just the fiscal operating debt. If you take into account unfunded liabilities, you're talking about upwards of $200 trillion in unfunded liabilities debts. Another sweeping proposal that could help save future generations is a market-based solution, which probably means just privatizing it. This free market alternative would let people take some of their Social Security payments and put it into a personal retirement account that could allow people to control their future. Ultimately, this market-based solution would have higher... Uh, yields than Social Security. It doesn't matter if it was put into buying equity within a business throughout the stock market or even having a lower yet safer return uh, through bonds or diversified investments. Countries that have tried this free market alternative have seen a have seen a boom in economic growth. For example, Chile has become an economic powerhouse since it transitioned to free market uh, policies 40 years ago, even at the expense, you know, whenever Augusto Pinochet took power and overthrew the socialist Salvador Allende, thanks to the uh, United States. Uh, Pinochet had decent economic policies, which did help bring the uh, their economy back, but Pinochet also, he tortured and killed a bunch of communists. I'm not a communist. I think that the communist way of life is abhorrent, but to... Torture communists, they are also people, and I think that is just a bad, bad look. 
This idea of limited government within retirement savings has led Chile to increased economic growth in comparison to its surrounding countries in Latin America and the Caribbean. These proposals, while taking several years, could could reduce the deficit by hundreds of billions each year. Speaking of deficits, which is actually different from the national debt. The national debt is overall money that we owe to other countries. Deficits are just yearly based. Like this year alone, we think we've already hit a trillion dollars in deficits. That just means that we spend more money than we have. Our annual budget is around $4 trillion, I believe, but it means we're spending $5 trillion or more uh, on you know, spending stuff. These proposals, while taking several years, could reduce the deficit to hundreds of billions every year. Lastly, reforming Medicare is quite a difficult task. It consists of multiple types of coverage, Part A, B, C, and D. Emphasis on D, which was uh, given to us by alleged conservative George W. Bush, who not just the Iraq War and the Afghanistan War, but thanks to him bringing in Medicare Part D, that's why I really think that he's... Not that great of a president. George W. Bush, to me, you heard it here. George W. Bush is an overrated president. It is possible to simplify the uh, program easily and save money at the same time. One approach would be to unify Part A, which is responsible for hospital bills and surgeries, and Part B, which is responsible for direct for uh, doctor visits. If these were combined, it would save an estimated $138.8 billion over 10 years. Another proposal would be gradually increasing premiums from 25% to 35% over 10 years. This change would save $462 billion over 10 years. It is clear that entitlement programs must be readjusted to reflect new advancements in technology. Will Congress attempt to do so, or will the United States fall further down this abyss? Only time will tell. And like I've said before, like uh, my guest from last week even said, if we don't do anything about it, like I said, China is one of our largest creditors. If we wind up defaulting, not only does that mean um, we will be uh, – our credit rate will go down, which means that uh, nobody will invest in us anymore. China could just start – I don't want to say this, but they could – it could be a real-time invasion or they could declare war and uh, so forth. Now, with that topic out of the way, a little prediction I'd like to make. With the spending path that we are currently on now, I could honestly see the U.S. reaching anywhere up to 28 to $30 trillion by the end of the year, if that's even possible. I usually, on a normal day, I wouldn't agree to that. I don't think that would be possible much at all. But with the way that we're spending due to coronavirus, we've already gone up $3 trillion in debt within the past one year, less than a year even. We just hit $25 trillion a couple of weeks ago, hit $24 trillion, not even a month before that. That's Something's got to be done. And I know it's uh, not popular to talk about because, like I said, most of the, the both of the bases, Democrat and Republican, mainly the Republicans, their base is that 65-plus range. So, like I said, something really, really, really has to be done. And usually not one to be pessimistic about it, but with the current Congress... I don't think much is going to be done. Now on to what was supposed to be the third topic, but it's now becoming the uh, second topic. Joe Biden's in the news again. Yeah, like I said, again, the emphasis on again. Uh, this morning, he went on uh, The Breakfast Club with Charlemagne the God. And close to the end, Joe Biden said something. I don't remember the exact quote, but I'm going to paraphrase here. It went along something like this. He said, if you're black and you're having a hard time deciphering who you're going to vote for between myself and Donald Trump, then... You're not black. I mean, you can take that comment as face value. I know there are people who are going to just jump out and defend this. 
especially those on uh, neoliberal Twitter, uh, Globe Twitter, as we like to call it. They're jumping on the finick and using a whataboutism for Trump. But there are a couple of tweets that are around that really just show the ignorance of Biden's most ardent supporter. Now, the first tweet here, I was able to get a screenshot here. Uh, the person deleted this. I want to give a hat tip out to Brad Palumbo at the Washington Post. He was able to snag a uh, screen, not the Washington Post, the Washington Examiner. My bad. I'm so sorry. Oh, my goodness. This has been a bit of a train wreck, but going to keep on going on. Uh, this first tweet is from Ida Bay Wells, who was one of the architects of the uh, 1619 Project, a.k.a. Revisionist History, which is basically what it is. The tweet says, there is a difference between being politically black and being racially black. I am not defending anyone, but we all know this and should stop pretending that we don't. What the actual fuck? Are Biden supporters seriously going to stoop to this low as to say, oh, there's only there's two types of blacks. There's politically black and racially black. What the hell does that even mean? How are you politically black? That is stupid. Does that mean if you're black, you have to vote Democrat your entire life? You have to vote uh, Democrat no matter what? That's stupid. Have your own damn thoughts and beliefs. I mean, this is a message out there to any of my African-American friends out there. You might want to think twice about voting for the Democrat Party. I mean, if you have your own candidates that you like, then so be it. I can try to change your mind, but I'm not sure how successful I'm being. I'm not even saying you have to vote Republican. You don't have to jump over to the Republican Party. I'm not even a registered Republican. I'm a, not even a registered anything, thanks to Missouri's open primary system that we have. I'm just saying, try joining the Libertarians. You know, Democrats only, they only want you because of your race. That's just really, really stupid. And this isn't even one of the worst ones. Now, here's another tweet from, well, it's Jamel Hill, the former sports writer at ESPN, who decided to stop being a sports writer just to become a complete hacktivist. I'm not sure if she went out on her own terms or if ESPN fired her. If ESPN fired her, that shows some consistency whenever considering that they fired, uh, who was it? Uh, Chris Broussard, they fired him, and then they also fired uh, Kurt Schilling, one of the greatest pitchers of all time. Even He had one of the best pro- uh, postseason performances of all time. The bloody shot game, he had a ruptured Achilles, and he pitched seven innings against... Uh, the evil empire known as the Yankees. But now back to Jameel Hill. Uh, she tweeted out this afternoon. She has not deleted this one yet. Uh, the issue wasn't what Joe Biden said because it was accurate. The issue was that it came from Biden. It also was clearly a joke that didn't land. But I'm wondering where all this outrage was yesterday when y'all president, that's an actual quote, when y'all president declared his public devo- uh, devotion to a Nazi sympathizer. The Nazi sympathizer in question would be Henry Ford, and Trump did the whole bloodlines thing. Even conservatives, some of the more actual conservatives, were actually saying that's not good. Uh, Neon Taster, who never was a big Trump guy, but he was never one who liked the criti- who never really criticized Trump regularly. I'm not saying he's a shill. I know he's not. But even he was uh, a little pissed off at that. He tweeted something out last night that something about the bloodlines and that not even being cool. But something's really wrong with Joe Biden. And for his supporters to basically say, ah, there's nothing wrong with that. It was a joke. Or just do a complete whataboutism. Which is funny because they always accuse the right of doing the whataboutism shtick. But anywho, uh, like I said, Joe Biden is... Gonna have to clean up, which I don't see that. And also, 
basically shame on the DNC for allowing this to continue. Like, of all the people you chose, of all the people, there's like 24, 25, even 26 candidates who ran. And you guys choose Joe Biden just because he was Barack Obama's vice president. That would be not well known at all, the fact that he wasn't Obama's vice president. But seriously, I still think this right now, this current presidential race, it has the ability. I think it'll go both ways. It could go both ways. But before this uh, whole coronavirus, won't be honest. I'll be honest with you. I think Trump had a really good shot at winning before this whole thing went uh, south, like the economy-wise. The economy was kicking ass, and then coronavirus happens, and everyone is forced to shut down. And we're seeing unemployment rates around 30 to 40%, which would shatter the Great Depression records. Well, that's going to be it for this episode. I'm really, really sorry that this wasn't longer than I expected. Again... I thought we were having technical difficulties, but apparently the volume was turned down on the uh, Skype. I didn't have the volume set for the uh, TV, and that's why I kept trying to find that. And unfortunately, Sandra wasn't able to uh, get in. She had other plans. But we're going to try and bring Sandra on in a couple of weeks. Uh, like I said, next week, though, we're going to have on Kevin Castley, a.k.a. the liberal neoconservative. I was going to... I was going to bring him on with Jared last week to do a debate on foreign policy, but putting them together would be like if you were to get Tucker Carlson and uh, John Bolton in the same room. It just would not end well. Anywho now, this is going to be a wrap for this episode. Like I said, uh, it'll be out, I'd say, no later than four. Well, it's probably going to be out earlier this week because it's going to be a shorter file, and I'll get it on SoundCloud, and I hope you all listen to it again. It's... Tried to do the best that I could, even while flying by the seat of my pants, which I don't really enjoy doing. But anywho, hope you guys enjoy it. Hopefully next week my interview with Kevin will go smooth, and I'll have other stuff to talk about. Uh, Proverbs 2019. Also, if you have any suggestions as to how to make the show better, you can email me at bradenlhart3 at yahoo.com. Again, bradenlhart3 at yahoo.com. Or my direct messages are open on Twitter, and you can follow me there, at Braden's World, at B-R-A-D-E-N-S underscore W-O-R-L-D. I am there on Twitter. Well, I'm going to sign off. I hope you all have a great, great weekend, and I will see you back here next Friday. Remember, Proverbs 29, 23.